0: Morning, uh, we would be remiss to not begin uh, with the word of God this morning, and so let me be sure that I invite you to spend time with the Lord this morning before whew, you begin to scan what's happening out there in the world and take your stand for Jesus in the midst of it. Um, I recognize that many of you woke up in places today where there was a lot of unrest last night, and that unrest on the streets of America causes. Um, all of us to be at some level of unrest, and so let us let us heed the counsel of Scripture and those who have gone before us to cast all of our anxiety on God. He's not only able to handle it; uh, He's ready and willing. So I'm thinking here about First Peter chapter five. If you're looking for a place to spend some time this morning, God is good, and uh, even though the enemy is prowling around looking for ways to devour us, God is unflinching. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and you can rely on him today for literally everything that you're going to need for the living of these hours. Uh, my, um, My little intro note to myself is talk about Louisville and beyond. And so for those of you who are not read in on this, a grand jury in Jefferson County, Kentucky, has indicted a former Louisville police detective on three charges of wanton endangerment in the first degree, in the March 13th shooting that resulted in the death of a 26-year-old woman named Brianna Taylor, uh, Brent uh, Brett, excuse me, Hankinson uh, is one of three officers involved. Uh, he was fired by the department in June with a termination letter saying he quote wantonly and blindly shot ten times into Taylor's apartment, and he is incu- accused of endangering lives in a neighboring unit um, after firing those rounds. So Brianna Taylor's name became uh, the rallying cry for overhauling the police in many places. It calls for um, not only criminal justice reform, but real reform of how police officers engage in communities across the country. You've heard for calls for community policing. You've heard for calls for um, defunding the police. Those conversations continue today as well. You've seen the rise of not only the Black Lives Matter movement, but you have seen uh, not only peaceful protests, but riots sweep across the United States this summer. Well, on Wednesday evening, um, that would be last night, two officers were actually shot following the indictment uh, of uh, former officer Hankinson in this case. Um, the the custody is in or the suspect is in custody. Let me just say this. I think that the person at the center of this who we need to be praying for today Um, is actually the black Kentucky Attorney General. His name is Daniel Cameron. Let's be praying for Daniel Cameron today. Um, He is seeking to lead his community to seek justice and to actually be interested in the truth of the facts of the case. Um, But you and I both know we are living in a day and a time when the mob mentality rules and people are not necessarily interested in The truth of what happened. They are interested in the confirmation of a particular narrative. And that is actually what the uh, Kentucky Attorney General Daniel Cameron said yesterday. As he gave the news of the charge against this one officer, uh, he said, Our reaction to the truth today says what kind of society we want to be. Do we really want the truth, or do we want a truth that fits our narrative? That is an excellent question uh, to be asking. He is right. We need to be praying for him and others uh, on the forefront of these conversations in cities across the country today. I know that those of you who woke up in St. Paul um, know that uh, 94 was closed last night as uh, protesters took to the streets there. There were open riots in the city of Atlanta. Uh, as well as um, unrest in uh, in cities including Dallas, Austin, Seattle. My list is pretty long, so I'll just stop there. Ben Johnson is waiting in the wings right now. He and I are going to turn to the case of the Capitol Hill Baptist Church. It's the first church to file suit against the city of D.C. over their COVID-19 worship restrictions. That conversation up next here on Mornings with Carmen.
1: My right, my right given by God
2: to live a free life to live
0: in Joining me now is Ben Johnson. He tweets at the Rights Writer. You can find him at Acton, acton.org. Ben welcome back.
2: Good morning, Carmen.
0: Good morning. Good morning. Um, So let's uh, let's jump in this morning with the case of the Capitol Hill Baptist Church filing suit against the city of Washington, D.C. over their COVID-19 worship restrictions. This is uh, the first that I'm aware of in the nation's capital. Um, What's going on there?
2: I think this is the first in the nation's capital, although uh, there are lawsuits in surrounding Maryland and Virginia because of their suburbs uh, in those policies, those uh, although those states are a little bit more uh, forgiving than Washington, D.C. Capitol Hill Baptist has about a thousand members, and the pastor there believes that it is absolutely vital that all of them meet in the same service. He doesn't have multiple campuses. He doesn't have multiple services, and he wants all of them to meet. But he has said he's willing to go above and beyond uh, what uh, Muriel Bowser, the mayor of Washington, demands of other people, that uh, they they socially distance six feet when they're outdoors. And uh, Bowser, in her order, has banned all indoor worship services until a cure or a vaccine for the coronavirus is found in stage four. But she's limiting outdoor religious services to no more than 100 people. Now, that's a lot fewer than the number of Black Lives Matter protesters that she allowed and encouraged, and even perhaps you might say the rioters that took to the streets uh, with uh, her stepping back on police enforcement. Capitol Hill Baptist certainly made that connection when they filed this lawsuit. They said that this violates their First Amendment right to religious liberty, uh, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, because these goals could have been met in a uh, in a a different way. And because the law is not being applied equally, she's allowing some groups to meet outside in far larger numbers with no social distancing, where Capitol Hill Baptist is willing to go above and beyond the letter of the law. Truly, if they ask you to go one mile, they're willing to go two here. And uh, every petition that they have made has been slow walked through the process all summer and then surreptitiously denied. So they're going to the courts to say, also, this violates the Fifth Amendment because they're being denied the right to liberty without due process of the law. I thought that was legally intriguing. So that's that's the case here that Muriel Bowser is being sued because she's not equally applying the law to all of her residents.
0: Okay, you're you're legally intrigued. That makes me conversationally intrigued. Um, what what is it that's legally intriguing about the observation related to the Fifth Amendment? I mean, this is this a new this is a relatively new argument that we're seeing from a church?
2: I, I don't see this a lot in uh, our side of the Iowa when it comes to jurisprudence. The Fifth Amendment, if people think of it, usually is only in the conversation of I refuse to incriminate myself on the stand. I invoke the Fifth Amendment. But uh, they're right that it, it guarantees the equal application of the law and that no one be denied. Without the application of the law, and in this case, they have not been tried they have not been found guilty of any reasonable standard. in fact, this standard doesn't hold up in other states, even in surrounding states uh, around the District of Columbia, which of course is not a state so I, I thought that was that was highly intriguing the idea that people are being denied without uh, any trial, and that uh, in this would require some kind of substantive uh, uh, evidence and it would require an evidentiary standard. And uh, it would require that uh, the the state actually verify the reason that it's taking the measures that it's taking. And if it is, uh, then RFRA comes in. Why are they applying these standards differently to the church? Is it a case of animus against religion, which also violates the First Amendment?
0: So I was reading in the article that Capitol Hill Baptist has been meeting for several months in a field outside of Virginia Church. Um, and the motion says that the church wants to negotiate with larger outdoor venues to hold services, but it can't if the city won't give it a waiver to do so. Um, it occurs to me that, uh, I mean, you know, it's going to start getting cold pretty soon. Um, churches meeting outside in open areas is become, going to become less and less um Reasonable, um, certainly for you know older adults or anyone with uh, you know I mean you know people can't stand in the freezing cold. I mean that's just not that's just not going to um, be a long term solution to the challenges that we're facing in relationship to COVID. Um, I I appreciated the um, the walk off of someone else. I know that this is in relationship to a Maryland church, but um, this person said Scripture calls us to be in fellowship and watching it on YouTube isn't fellowship. Um, ben, you are uh, in a more liturgical church than I am in. Is, is the meeting together, I mean, the actually being physically present together, particularly for, let's say, the receiving of communion, um, is that essential in some um, varieties of, of Christendom? And is there something lost when we're not, like, we're literally not allowed to gather together?
2: There absolutely is. I think this is the most important part, and not just for liturgical churches or churches that take communion, say, every Sunday, where it's an important constituent part of the worship service. Uh, And, for example, that's the case among the Church of Christ, too, which is not at all a high church or liturgical uh, church, but they believe you have to have the breaking of the bread, as it says in Acts chapter 242. And gathering in person is absolutely integral as a part of Christianity. It has been since the birthday of the Church Acts chapter 2, verse 1 says, when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all in one accord in one place. And that's been the standard for Christians, that we gather on Sunday morning, uh, to the greatest extent possible, we gather in, uh, in one fold with one shepherd. And uh, Capitol Hill Baptist says in its legal brief, it's absolutely necessary to meet in person to be what it calls, and this is a beautiful phrase, a biblically ordered church. Worshiping in person is absolutely important. I started to say when I was thinking about this, that this is a lesson for non-Christians, but given the response to the lockdowns, a lot of Christians need to know that they are essential personnel as well. And, uh, you know, uh, Father Robert Sirico of the Acton Institute said recently that uh, when it came to the COVID-19 virus, the response of the church in many cases was, we're closed. So Mm. we have to remember, we are first responders. We are essential personnel, and uh, we have to bring this home and uh, recognize that we need to gather together with all of the proper precautions that you can take. But gathering together is a constituent part of what it means to be a Christian on Sunday morning. That's normative.
0: All right. I like that reclamation of the language. Uh, I'm going to continue this conversation with Ben Johnson in just a moment. You can find him at the Acton Institute, A-C-T-O-N dot O-R-G. You can also find him on Twitter at The Rights Writer. We'll be right back. Returning to my conversation with Ben Johnson. Um, Ben, accurate or hyperbole? That's the question I'm going to pose to you as I tee up this next conversation. So I read a piece in The Atlantic. Is this really the end of abortion? Democrats might crush Republicans in November with a 6-3 conservative Supreme Court majority. Abortion rights could still be decimated. So this sort of rolls all the conversations into one. Supreme Court nomination conversation, what it might look like to have a 6-3 conservative Supreme Court, the conversation related to whether or not the court would redefine um, or readdress Roe v. Wade, whether or not that would actually bring an end to abortion in America. I think it would not. And then, um, you know, I thought the leadoff of this was interesting. Uh, Democrats might crush Republicans in November. Uh, Let's talk about the big topic on the forefront of many people's minds, and that is the right to life and or abortion.
2: Yeah, you are correct in your assertion here that uh, even if Roe v. Wade were to be overturned tomorrow, it would not criminalize abortion across the country. Abortion would still be available. And uh, in fact, in many cases, all the way up until the moment of birth and subsidized by the state. So uh, states like California, and New York have laws in place specifically with this in mind. Uh, where there's a a heavy pro-abortion presence in the state legislature, that if Roe is overturned, then state law will apply. And until that state law is struck down, then the state will promote abortion uh, and, indeed, will will continue to be funded by taxpayers through compulsory taxation. So uh, you're definitely right. This is not the end of abortion on demand. Uh, It's simply the beginning of an era where uh, the high court can no longer impose a radical view of abortion up until the moment of birth, on the entire country from a remote place in Washington DC with no regard for the feelings of its constituents, much less the reality of the human person inside the womb. So that is a good thing that uh, Washington should not consider the nine people who are unelected on the Supreme Court to be a rotating legislature where any five or sometimes four can institute new legislation. Uh, That was never the role of the court, it was never intended to be that way. Uh, One of the things that kind of struck me about this article that you sent me, uh, and not to diverge too much, was just the humanity of the pro-life leaders that it profiled, like uh, my old acquaintance, Marjorie Dannenfelser of uh, Susan B. Anthony List, and uh, Catherine Glenn Foster of Americans United for Life, and the rest of the pro-life movement. Everyone who I've heard address the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg has done so in the context that it's a tragedy, that they are praying for her and her family, and uh, they, they have nothing but uh, the most heartfelt uh, sense of loss for the fact that this is a human person who has died. When you believe in the dignity of all life, then that allows you to love even those who politically would be on the other side. And I think you saw that with your friendship with Anton and Scalia, the kind of decency that they had with one another, where if we don't have that, then uh, we're in, and particularly if we're also people who don't have faith, then we're in a real fear of demonizing the other side.
0: Um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, you have a lovely piece uh, about her at, at the Acton website, so let me direct people to that as well. Um, I, I would like to just pause and ask you, Ben, um, if you, uh, you think it's even possible that somebody with as ardent a Jewish heritage and seemingly active faith as Ruth Bader Ginsburg could have possibly had as her dying wish— Anything related to the United States of America and who might sit next in a seat on the Supreme Court. I just I I just it's hard for me to believe that that is a is it's hard for me to believe that is the dying wish of a person of any kind of faith. I got to tell you, that's not going to be my concern when I'm dying.
2: No, no one ever dies and says, I wish I spent more time at the office, but exactly. uh, that's, that's what we're being asked to believe in this case, that uh, she, she was all concerned on her deathbed about her successor. Now, Ginsburg definitely had a very high view of the court and her position on it, and after the death of her husband, Marty, she threw herself into her work even more. So is it possible that she had uh, a very high concern for who succeeded her? I'm sure she did. Was that what she was thinking about on her deathbed instead of her children and her grandchildren? I tend to doubt it as well.
0: You know, and so those of you who want to at me that I am uh, promoting misinformation, I want to suggest that it's possible that those who are telling you that that was her dying wish are actually the ones misinforming us. I mean, it's hard to know, right? None of us were there. And I just, I, it's maybe the question we should be asking as Christians is, what will be my dying wish? What is my dying wish? And my dying wish is more of Jesus, that more people would know Jesus, um, that they would die with the kind of faith with which I intend to die, Um, and, and know that in death, there's just more Jesus. I mean, the reason that Paul said, you know, to live as Christ and to die as gain, because he knew that in dying, he got more Jesus, like full time, fully, fully knowing, not just fully known. I mean, it's, there's an exhilaration to knowing the one drawing us unto himself, not only in life, but ultimately, you know, across the threshold of
2: death. Well, the things of earth will grow strangely dim when in the light of his glory and grace, there's no question about it. Uh, When we come to recognize that this life is a preparation for true life, and ultimately when we're on the other side of this life, that's when we're going to have uh, the real understanding of what life has been all about, which is to prepare us to become and to receive pure, undefiled, unending love. And we're, we're being fit to receive that and fit to give that here on earth. So without that we're not truly being, we're not truly doing the things that is necessary to be a human being.
0: So, Ben, when you think about, uh, when you think about heaven, when you think about the the wedding feast of the lamb, um, and you think about the fact that there's a there's a place card, there's an empty chair right now, like in heaven at that feast, and there's a place card with your name on it. Like, that's the empty chair I'm concerned about. Not yours, right? Because you have already got your place card. You've already said yes. I'm concerned about the empty chairs in front of which there's not yet a place card because people have not responded to the grace of God in Jesus Christ and said, yes, I accept this invitation to not only this glorious feast, but to this life eternal in the fullness of the presence of God. I mean, I'm, I'm not concerned about an empty seat on the Supreme Court. I'm, I'm concerned about empty seats um, where people have not yet positively responded to the grace of God in Jesus Christ, where we're going to, you know, be for all eternity.
2: Well, the scriptures say we'll rule and reign with him and we'll even be judges, uh, judging uh, those who come before us in a certain sense, uh, along with, of course, he is the, the true judge. But uh, each of us will have a position that is higher than the angels in that seat. Uh, so there's, there's no question that is the seat that we need to aspire to. And it is more fulfilling, it is more real, and we can begin to feel that even here in this life, uh, although we see it through a glass darkly, we can perceive the the light of Christ's love shining within us, uh, shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, crying out, Abba Father, because we can feel that here on earth and we have the birth pain throughout this life that our soul will eventually be born into eternal life. This entire life is just one long gestational period for us to eventually be born uh, as to children in the kingdom of heaven worshiping at the throne of our divine father so that's how we need to look at this life it's preparation for life with all those cares and the sorrows and the things that god never intended to come about like cancer and riots and innocent people being shot none of this was god's will and we will experience his will when we truly enter into that kingdom of heaven Uh, but through this valley of tears we have to persevere until we come to that day through the grace and love and merit of jesus christ in him alone
0: amen Amen. All right, Ben Johnson, you and I got to leave it right there. You guys can find Ben at the Acton Institute, A-C-T-O-N dot O-R-G. Thank you, my brother.
2: Thank you. God bless. You too.
0: We'll be right back. All right, we have a listener who has said, Laura Story's song, Give You Faith, is amazing and fits well in the Dying Wish category. Laura Story's uh the, the lyrics of that song um, are about a mom considering uh, her children. And she says, I wonder how I'll raise this precious gift of life. I'd give you all money, but you can't buy what you'd need. Uh, I'd show you all the world. But more than anything, I want to give you faith. I want to leave you hope that you would know a love that never lets you go. More than wisdom or wealth, more than happiness or health. May you say, I gave you faith. It's a great... Um, it's a great dying wish. It's also a great living wish. It's a great living wish. How are we giving away the faith today? All right. Next up, I am going to have a conversation with Craig Hood. He is the senior vice president and COO of Convoy of Hope. If you've been wondering how are people of faith responding to hurricanes and wildfires and Uh, the pandemic, and everything else that our neighbors are facing right now. Convoy of Hope is really on the forefront um, of deploying hope to our neighbors in need. So we're going to get, we're going to check in with Convoy of Hope. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen.
1: Look back at previous generations and you'll see people who worked hard to meet their basic needs. Fast forward to Today's Teens, and you find almost the exact opposite. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. Generally speaking, today's generation of young adults are some of the most entitled and irresponsible people on the planet. They stay immature long into their 20s, and they basically refuse to grow up. Well, as long as parents are willing to serve everything up on a silver platter for their kid, they unintentionally postpone the development of their teens. Are you looking to infuse some independence and maturity? Try holding back on a few things and let your children stretch their muscles to fulfill their own desires. Want more parenting help from Mark Gregston? Find helpful resources at parentingtodaysteens.org or search for Parenting Today's Teens in your favorite app store.
0: the move and the way that God chooses to move in any generation is through the activation of the hearts and hands and networking of his people. So I want you to consider how it is that you are a part of God's hope delivery system to others. So one of the one of the ways to understand the term hope is helping others perceive eternity or helping others perceive eternity. And so when we talk about reconnecting the eternal with the everyday, part of that is how do we deliver hope, tangible hope? How do we show up? How do we sit alongside? How do we walk with those who are literally experiencing the worst day of their life or the worst uh, stretch of, uh, of an experience of life that maybe includes uh, a natural disaster and so uh, Convoy of Hope is an organization that's literally um, putting, putting wheels to this, right? They're putting feet to this. They are literally delivering hope to the forefront of these places and spaces into the lives of, uh, of our neighbors who are in desperate, desperate need. And so joining me now is Craig Hood. He's a senior vice president and chief operating officer of Convoy of Hope. Craig, welcome to Mornings with Carmen.
1: Well, thank you, Carmen. I'm really glad to be on the on the line with you.
0: It's wonderful to have you with us today. Um, let's, uh, let's do this. Let's start with, in case there are folks listening who are not familiar with Convoy of Hope, why don't you introduce what you guys are, uh, you know, sort of what the mission is, and then maybe give us a quick survey of all of the places where you guys are involved right now.
1: Okay. All right. Well, Convoy of Hope is a faith-based humanitarian relief organization that's based in Springfield, Missouri, We've been around for 26 years. We have a strong emphasis on feeding children in uh, some of the most impoverished places of the world. So we have over 340. It may actually hit 380,000 children in our daily feeding program around the world. And we're talking Central America, Africa, Philippines—you know, places where there's an enormous amount of poverty. And so that's one of our first big pillars. But we also are involved in women's empowerment around the world and helping women find and build jobs of their own, micro businesses of their own. We we train them up. We have a, a grant that helps them determine what they're going to do. And they, I mean, they raise chickens and they sell eggs in there. They uh, uh, make shoes, and it just all—it depends on the on the country. A third big thing we do is we help farmers around the world, and so we have a, a an agriculture program that typically goes in again, oftentimes in the same exact places where we're feeding children and working with the women and women's empowerment. It makes sense to—it's kind of a holistic model where ag is, you know, one of the biggest ways people make a living. And we help them study the soil, we teach them farming practices, and long story short, help them not only grow more food for themselves, but to be able to sell in the market. And that's kind of one big side. The other side, here in America, we're most known for our disaster response. And so we typically are, we work closely with FEMA, and we're on the ground. We call ourselves, we're not first responders, because we're not search and rescue, but we're we're the first, typically, we're one of, if not the first groups, right alongside American Red Cross and Compassion, uh, excuse me, uh, Samaritan's Purse and others. And, uh, but we have trailer trucks, semis. We've raised so far this year, over $170 million in gift gifting kind, which would be food and water and supplies. Anyway, so we're going to be, you know, there. Hurricane Laura, Hurricane Sally. Yeah, you know, I remember Hurricane Harvey, you know, three years ago, so big. We were right there. There's more we do, but that's kind of the high, kind of the high, quick overview.
0: Well, and it's, um, it's extraordinary. And I think that when people hear all of that, um, you know, they're, they're saying to themselves, wow, I mean, I, I can't imagine um, sending a tractor trailer of supplies into, um, you know, into an area with, that's just totally devastated where the power is out. Um, you know, what, how do you deal with all of that? Talk, talk a little bit about the how, because I think that when when we want to respond, sometimes we feel paralyzed by, it's you know, the area is so devastated. I mean, you know, I'm thinking, thinking about the wildfires on the West Coast, or I'm thinking yes, about, yes. you know, a hurricane in, in Louisiana or Alabama. And I'm thinking to myself, it's probably not safe nor prudent for me to show up. So talk about the way that you approach this um, through Convoy of Hope.
1: Oh, sure. In fact, this is like late breaking news i know yesterday i just got a report that we had already sent 14 loads and typically this will be water and other kind of emergency relief stuff to the wildfires and so
2: mm-hmm.
1: we have 22 we have a fleet of 22 uh trailer tractor trailers you know, semi trucks that we you know we're on we put them on the road but here's a, kind of a the the it's cool because obviously people can give and that's exciting to know that there's an organization that's going to be there we I like to tell people that if you hear about a disaster there's a there's an almost certainty We either know about it and have already checked on whether or not we need to respond, or we're already rolling the truck. So that's kind of fun. Second thing, we trained over 50,000 volunteers last year. So we have this wide network around the country, typically through churches. And so they hear about our work. They're usually supporting, to some degree, Convoy financially. And they get excited about being more involved. So we have this volunteer network that now, over the last few years, We've been able to build up to the point that when we know there's a hurricane coming, we start calling the churches that know us, and we've probably already got volunteers ready. And when we roll, they're there, and we even have lead volunteers on site that are almost like trained staff. They've probably come to Springfield for training. We may have gone there for training because, obviously, we we do a lot of it. So people that want to get their hands dirty really get involved, sometimes it's as simple as showing up to help us on the car lines where we're distributing food and water. And sometimes it's they've gone through the training. I like to laugh about one of our courses you're gonna, is in chainsaw, chainsaw management, you know, because. Okay, so I'm
0: I'm married to a certified (laughs) arborist. He's gonna be thrilled Ah. to know that you're not just passing out chainsaws, like, right? That's so good.
1: It's really a dangerous tool. 20 20 of them, and we have a truck. That's what it holds. And yeah, if you haven't gone through the training, you're not gonna get one. But you know, when you're on site, I remember at the devastation with Arby. I had a chance to go down and look. And, I mean, trees twisted and turned and thrown sideways, and you know, a lot of that through people's yards. And so, you know, one of the things we do initially, with, especially with that kind of a disaster, is debris removal. So, anyway, that's one thing. We, we have a number of specialized courses that reflect what our paid staff does. And we have a small staff, so we work very, very uh, heavily through volunteers. And then we have individualized collections of courses, you know, to help them be like a volunteer staff leader.
0: All right, so when we come back, um you, have to, you and I have to take a very brief break, Craig. But when we come back, I want I want to talk about, I mean, this has been a record-setting year and that's like not necessarily a good thing. So I want to talk yeah. about I want to talk about how you guys respond to simultaneous and successive disasters. Um but let me just go ahead and uh direct people to the website. It is convoyofhope.org if you want to check it out. Craig Hood and I will be right back. We can talk- Continuing my conversation with Craig Hood, he is the Senior Vice President and Chief Operations Officer for Convoy of Hope. You can find them at convoyofhope.org. There's an updates page. You can check out uh, everything that's going on right now. Um, Craig, let's talk about how you guys respond to what I would describe as simultaneous and successive disasters. Like, I feel like we are It's an ongoing disaster season right now. And so um, you guys have a fleet. You've got obviously truck drivers. You've got people who are trained up in various ways. But there's a lot to respond to right now. So just talk about the preparation that it takes to actually deliver hope.
1: Oh, I'd love to. In fact, let me start with the heart. You know, our founder, Hal Donaldson, he's our CEO and president. He's incredible. And Hal started convoy I Hope 26 years ago from the back of a pickup truck with groceries that he bought with his credit card at a grocery store to hand out to people in need. So this, the heart Hal has, and his story is amazing. The heart Hal has drives us. You know, no matter how good you might be at logistics and deployment, how many volunteers you might have, how many staff you might have, if you don't have the heart, you you just can't do it. So when I start with that heart, and and how I love Hal says, we want to help millions of people. Who are hurting and let them know Jesus loves them. It's not, it's not like an evangelistic thing, although people do come to come to Christ like, you know, really crazy good. But inside that heart now, then comes the outgrowth. And convoy being 26 years old, we've been going through our you know growing pace and growing stages. Uh, I know Katrina was big, and that kind of set us up to know how to respond. And then as we've continued to hit these disasters, we try to learn from everyone so that. We have a team. I mean, a lot of people who look at Convoy, they if you take aside the kind of the hard piece and the mission piece and you just look at what we do, a lot of people have identified us as a logistics company. So we have learned how to, and this is gradual, and it's by doing it. We've learned how to respond quickly. We've learned how to respond in com- with complexity. But it's, it's the size and scope of the ministry, and it's, you just get, to, you get better by doing it over and over. So we have responded back to 17. We had five disasters on simultaneous, starting with Katrina. And right now we're responding to four. So you, you it becomes our normal, I guess, mm-hmm. in the sense that we just deploy our teams and because of their commitment level, they do it. And then we have learned, it's something we learned from heart. We've learned the need to re- rotate. So people are typically, we we don't we try really hard not to wear them out. They might be on location, you know, on site two weeks at a time, come back, you know, and we just go back and forth like that. We also move people from other roles at Convoy. If the need, like right now, the need has been so great with the COVID-19 response, and we've been able to distribute hundred million, over 100 million meals. So we pull people from other parts of Convoy who may have been doing field teams, but they can't do field teams because we're not traveling much, at least not overseas. So, you know, it's it's got that kind of a all-hands-on-deck feel.
0: So one of the reasons that I wanted you to talk about that is you guys just walk um, every day into and then through the worst thing that anybody could ever imagine happening in their life. And you do so with consistency and compassion. It is complex. Um, But for you to say, like, "This this has become normal for us. That is a really extraordinary statement to be able to make because it, what what has become normal for you is literally the most catastrophic, unimaginable things that people are experiencing, and so I just want to I just want to say it's a gift what you're doing. I know you know that at some level, but you need to hear that affirmed that mm. your ability to do day in and day out. What what for other people is, I mean, they are paralyzed by whatever it is that has just come upon them, whether or not it's the pandemic or it is, you know, a derecho or it's a wildfire or it's a hurricane or it's a tornado. I mean, the list is very long. Um, You all over time have developed um, not only a an ability related to the logistics, but because it grows out of the heart. You're doing it in such a way where people feel loved in the midst of it. It doesn't feel like I'm just, you know, one person that they're throwing a tarp into my car on my way past. It Mm -hmm. does grow out of this genuine heart of love that here but for the grace of God go I. And therefore I come in the name of Christ to humbly serve those who have literally been devastated by by a natural disaster in most cases. And so I just want to, you know, I want to say thanks and I want to encourage you.
1: Oh, thank you. You know, and this is, you're right, it's a gift. It's the grace of God, the fruit of the Spirit. You know, I, one of the things I've noticed about our people is how, and it's not just our staff. These are the volunteers that we work with, is people smile. You know, They mm-hmm. give help. And, you know, when you come with water and you come with food and you come with blankets and you come with tarps, you know, they know you're serious. I mean, you've got trucks and you're helping them, but you're also giving them hope. And then I do think we've got a couple of guys, our two key leaders in this, a guy named Nick. Uh, Wiersma and Stacy Lamb, I call them the field generals, you know, (laughs) because when they show up, there is this calming presence because those guys know what to do. And we had a pastor, we had a video, in fact, uh, that we showed internally. There's a pastor who told, uh, told, uh, I believe it was Nick. And he said, when you guys first came, I was paralyzed. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to do the next thing. And he said, you calmed us, you showed us this is next. This is next. This is next. And we do have the experience now that even in those bad things, we do know there's some, there's some principles. And they're a little different in a tornado response from a hurricane response to the wildfires. But there are principles that we know when we come in, they're going to work. Uh, one quick story, if you'll let me. This one happened Please. at Harvey three years ago. So this Harvey, you know, was the biggest one. I've been a convoy for four years, biggest one I've seen. And it was when Vice President Pence actually went down to see the location we were at. He actually came and he saw us. And Stacy told me that the Secret Service guy, I don't know if I'm supposed to say this on air. <laughs> it's, not, it's not sensitive, but he told You're fine. me, I'm being, I'm being silly. He told Stacy, he said, man, your operation is so efficient. He said, you guys are like the military. And I thought, wow, what a compliment that Stacy knows how to set up shop. And I remember it was on Fox News. You got to see the backdrop, you know, Governor Abbott from Texas was there and Vice President Pence. And then the backdrop is a convoy truck, you know, and and but the way we were serving 1,200 cars a day, giving every car a load of food and water carrying through the week, you know, stuff like that. So there is a precision to this that has to have the grace and the favor of God on it, but has to be driven by the love for people. But you still got to work hard, <laughs> you know,
0: All right. So that has led one of our um, listeners to ask a question. Does Convoy of Hope work um, cooperatively with government agencies or independent of them?
1: We work cooperatively. In fact, we're often, not every time, we're oftentimes one of the key groups that FEMA will use to help coordinate. Because on site, you can imagine, you've got great groups and we are involved in a cooperative, collaborative way with every volunteer group, that does disaster response and government agencies. But oftentimes they'll let us kind of help coordinate because we're many times we'll be the first group that's coming with relief supplies, but we're still independent, you know, so it's, and it's just, there's a collegiality among the most of the time among the disaster response organizations.
0: Sure. Absolutely. All right. So um, Craig, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to direct people to convoyofhope.org. We're gonna commit to pray for. Those of you who are able, please volunteer. Those of you who are interested in doing so, please donate. Um, This is an ongoing ministry and um, our neighbors are in need not only of the help that arrives via the Convoy of Hope, but the hope that arrives um, with the Convoy of Hope. And so, Craig Hood, please encourage those with whom you labor. Um, We appreciate you being with us today on Mornings with Carmen.
1: Thank you, Carmen. It's a a pleasure and it's a blessing to be able to.
0: Blessings. All right, friends, we'll be right back. All right, I'm scrolling around the Convoy of Hope website, Um, convoyofhope.org. I want to know who encourages you. Maybe you've been through a natural disaster. Uh, Who showed up? Was it Samaritan's Purse? Was it Convoy of Hope? Um, was it Billy Graham Evangelistic Association? Was it um, the Southern Baptists? I know that in various places, you know, uh, different, uh, different parts of the kingdom, right, are able to respond. And so I'd love to know who has been on the forefront of a disaster maybe in your community or with whom you have volunteered over the course of time. You can always text me, 877 2484 You can send me an email, myfaithradio.com. Um, maybe it was the Red Cross uh, on and on and on i 'd like to know i 'd like to know who showed up in, in the crisis in, in your life in the experience of disaster that you have walked through, um, who showed up to walk with you in hope and with help. Uh, let me know. text me at eight seven seven nine three three two four eight four or send me an email Carmen at MyFaithRadio.com. we got a whole another hour of mornings with Carmen up next.